Today's episode of Housing News is absolutely incredible. I have the unique pleasure of interviewing Lee Smith, the Senior Vice President and President of Mortgage at Flagstar Bank. Lee provides an incredible expertise and commentary around some of the most important things happening in mortgage lending. Today, we're talking about the banking industry, some of the tighter capital requirements and increased regulatory oversight that's been having an impact on players across the mortgage lending ecosystem. We discuss market dynamics in mortgage lending, including Fed actions and interest rates, and some commentary from the Federal Reserve. And we discuss the new flag star and how the institution has evolved quite a bit in the last 12 months. At the end of 2022, NYCB, the New York Community Bank Corp, acquired Flagstar, and in March of this year, Flagstar and NYCB surprised the market by acquiring parts of Signature Bank in an FDIC-assisted transaction. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mr. Lee Smith, Senior Executive Vice President and President of Mortgage at Flagstar Bank. So I'm here with Brenna Nath, the leader of Housing Wires, HW Plus, and events business. Brenna, welcome. Hey, Housing News audience. So we're going to talk about Housing Wire Annual for a minute. So I don't know if this event is for you. It's certainly not for everybody in our audience, but it is for the leaders of the housing industry. We have built Housing Wire Annual for mortgage banking, mortgage origination, capital markets, and real estate brokerage leaders. Brenna, give us a glimpse into what the leaders of our industry can expect at Housing Wire Annual. It's always great to know who else is going to be in the room, right? So, I mean, just this week, wrapped up a call with Ginger Wilcox, who is now the president of Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate. That's a great example of someone who's been across the housing, real estate, mortgage industry. Other great speakers include Baron Silverstein. He's the president over at New Res, Cindy Keith, chief strategy officer at NFM Lending, Alec Hansen, chief marketing officer at Loan Depot. I'm specifically saying their titles and the companies because I think that really lets you have a perspective of who are the peers in this space um, and really some of the biggest companies out there that you want to kind of mingle with. We're also bringing some of uh, the industry thought leaders and economics and data like Logan Motoshami and Mike Simonson. We're both part of our team at HW Media and Sandra Thompson from the FHFA is also joining us. So like I said in the beginning, this event is not for everybody in the housing industry, but it is for the leaders who want to help define the future of mortgage and real estate. If you're interested, check out our website. It's October 10th at the Hyatt Lost Pines near Austin, Texas. Brenna, any other details? Uh, it's a great place to bring your family, I would say. But even if it's just your team or coworkers, this is a great spot to bring those people closest to you to either learn about the industry or spend extra time with your family and rest along with get the knowledge. Lee, welcome to Housing News. Thanks for making time to to join me today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Clayton. Looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, so Lee, as president of mortgage at Flagstar, I I know you've been busy. And if I'm if I'm reading the the bio the correct way, uh, you really came into this role at the the beginning of this um, pandemic induced boom in the in the housing world. Is that accurate? Yeah, I uh, I was uh, previously the chief operating officer of Flagstar, and uh, I joined Flagstar back in 2013 
uh, and was in that role until around July, August of 2020, uh, when I moved to be the president of Mortgage. So to your point, that was right after the, the pandemic kicked in. And we all know that the mortgage origination business and the warehouse lending business were just going gangbusters given the low rate environment. So the last three years have been quite the ride if you've been in the mortgage business, as you know. Yeah, absolutely. And before you joined Flagstar, noticing your background that you're part of Matlin Patterson on the in the private equity side, how did that career in, in private equity prepare you for the responsibilities and challenges in the banking world at, at Flagstar? Yeah, well, I think in private equity, and we Matlin Patterson was a distressed private equity uh, shop. So what I would say is, First of all, things move very quickly in private equity. Things move very quickly in mortgage. Um, And being a private equity investor, uh, you were always doing a lot of analysis. uh, And and every decision you made needed to be backed up with thorough uh, analysis. And that's what we do at Flagstar. Um, Everything we do, we've got a great team that is always looking at the analytics, the numbers, does it make sense? Is it generating the appropriate returns um, for the organization and our shareholders? Uh, and, and the other thing that I think it taught me was it doesn't matter how difficult the situation is, you just learn to deal with it. You don't get too excited, whether it's you know too emotional, uh, too disappointed. You try and keep that level keel. And I think that's important in banking and mortgage and life generally. You've, you've just got to keep that balance. And whatever it throws at you, you've got to feel confident that you can deal with it. I like that evaluation. I, I think you're exactly right. Very excitable personalities don't exactly last for long careers in the in the banking or, or mortgage industry. I think we all signed up for, for an industry that has a, a cyclical dynamic and also a the heavy hand of of regulation riding along with us at all times and if you uh if you if you jump up and shout every single time we hear something from a regulator or see a change in the housing data um that that'd be a stressful existence it would be very stressful and you wouldn't last long and so you've just got to deal with it take it all in your stride uh you got to have confidence in your, in your team your platform and what you're doing um, and, if, and I think if you do that, then you will achieve strong and positive results. But you're absolutely right. You can't, uh, you can't get too excited every time something changes or moves on you. Um, because uh, if, if, that's, if that's your persona, then mortgage is not for you. Because as you know, it's changing several times a day. So I, I want to get into talking about the banking industry and regulation. But before we move on from this topic of... Um, being too excitable as an executive, how have you helped but like, kind of bring that even keel nature to other leaders and executives inside the organization and kind of like a what's kind of been like your leadership and communication style that um, helps drive a, a steady ship? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So first and foremost, I'm a big believer in, in teamwork. Um, and I played a lot of sport when I was younger. Um, and we're much stronger together. And you'll hear a lot of people talk about teamwork. But when we talk about teamwork, it's about being collaborative, helping each other be as successful as we can possibly be. Uh, It's about being communicative. I'm a big believer that communication isn't just top down, it's bottoms up, and it's across. 
if we share information, we're stronger. Knowledge is power. And so I want to make sure the team has the tools and the platform to be as successful as they can possibly be. But I need the team to tell me what they need. Uh, and so we're very communicative uh, and we're transparent. Uh, I believe that anybody should be able to go and talk to anybody about anything at any time. And so when we talk about teamwork, it's around um, it, it, collaboration, communication and transparency. And then I think the other two values uh, that we really do uh, believe in are providing great service. We always talk about going that extra mile for our customers. And when I talk about customers, that doesn't just apply to our external customers. It's how we treat each other internally. Uh, we want to treat you want to treat everybody with respect, treat people how you would want to be treated. And I think that starts to then build the next value, which is trust. Uh, I'm a big believer that it doesn't matter whether it's a personal or a business relationship. If you don't have trust, you don't have anything. Um, and then finally, um, we believe in accountability. We want to empower our people to make decisions. We're not micromanagers. As I mentioned, we want to give the team the tools and the platform to be as successful as they can be. And good people uh, make good decisions. So at Flagstar, we're a big believer in Good to Great by Jim Collins. Um, mm -hmm. And that talks about putting the right people in the right seats on the bus. You empower them to make decisions. They'll make good decisions and they'll do uh, what's good for the organization. And so those are some of the um, values and, and, the, and, and the culture that, that we believe in that, that also facilitates that team-oriented approach and keeps everybody calm. I really like that that cultural framework. So shifting the conversation to talking about the, the banking industry, uh, regulation is a constant topic, but over the last several weeks, there's been coverage by Bloomberg and Housing Wire on Basel Endgame and, and some of the proposed changes that, that might have an impact on kind of large depositories that uh, operate in the mortgage lending business. Can you give us an, an overview of how you're thinking about the current regulatory environment and some of the proposed changes that are out there in market for discussion right now? Yeah. So I think a lot of this, as you know, is stemming from the recent banking crisis uh, where four banks uh, were, were seized and, and there was obviously then um, sales of other banks uh, that were that were on the edge, and um, as a result of that, the regulators um, have, have started to look at what what can they do to tighten things up. And I think it's well documented uh, that there's a few things that are going to happen here. First of all, uh, for banks over a hundred billion, uh, they're going to uh, insist or there's going to be greater capital requirements the banks over 100 billion are going to have uh, are going to have to hold more capital uh, i think there's also going to be more regulatory oversight um, of all banks but particularly banks in excess of of 100 billion because you look at silicon valley you look at signature um, you look at First Republic, and, and those banks were actually, they were over 100 billion, and in some cases, they were over 200 billion. Uh, so the requirements for those banks between 100 and 250 billion are going to get more uh, punitive around capital and possibly around uh, liquidity management as well. 
And so what that does is it's obviously adding cost to those banks that are over 100 billion. And I think what it's ultimately going to do is mean that those banks need to have more scale in order to cover those additional costs that are coming down the, the, the pike. You're going to need a, additional scale. So what, what do I think that means in the sort of longer term, five to seven years? I think you're going to see more consolidation in the industry. Um, if you look 15 years ago, there were 12,000 banks in the US. There are 4,600 banks today. And I think there will be far fewer five to seven years from now. I also think that five to seven years from now, the top 25 banks will be three, four hundred billion in asset side plus. Uh, I think this latest bank crisis uh, has, has, has created a um, culture, if you like, where bigger is perceived as being safer. Uh, and so and, and given these additional requirements uh, around capital and, 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 and the costs that are likely coming, it's going gonna, it's gonna to force banks to have more scale in order to cover that. And so I think that's what's going to drive more consolidation over the next five to seven years. And, and you're going to see this sort of group of, of top 25 banks really um, accelerating ahead of the pack. And the U.S. is very unique in that regard. You go to any other countries around the world, they maybe have six to 10 banks. The U.S. is very unique in the fact that it has so many banks. Uh, and I think, you know, that's another reason you're going to see more consolidation over the next uh, few years. Lee, I was at City during the financial crisis and then at Royal Bank of Canada after that. And so I've seen the... Um, where at the time era when too big to fail was a bad thing, I guess, or at least in headlines. Yeah. And then I've seen the era or I've seen the exposure of working in the Canadian ecosystem where uh, five or six banks can effectively finance and manage the deposits of an entire country. Um, do you think that a shift toward consolidation is a, is an unintended or an intended uh, kind of, outcome of the regulatory body because i i've you know just so succinctly remember and vibrantly remember like too big to fail being such a uh you know a negative thing um to the point where andrew ross sorkin put it on the cover of a book yeah i uh it's a good point i i think it is it's it's unintended because i think people realize the value of the regional banks and the banks that are between 10 and 100 billion and then people realize the the value of the banks below 10 billion that have a, a niche specialty and are probably working in more rural areas um, and are funding those businesses in, in the more rural areas that the big banks, um, that is not part of their business model. But uh, as there's more regulation, as there's more uh, and heightened capital requirements that are more punitive, then naturally it's going to create that consolidation for the reasons that we discussed. So I, I genuinely believe that it's not the intention, but the way it's being handled is, is going to force that consolidation, as I say, because if you're a bigger bank, you're over 100 billion, you're going to need that scale. Um, and as you know, as you sort of bounce up against the hundred billion, two hundred and fifty billion dollar, those limits, you, you don't just want to cross those thresholds uh, by a, a dollar. 
you want to cross those significantly because it's got to be worth your while given how much infrastructure or additional infrastructure you need to have in place as you start hitting those 100 and 250 billion dollar uh levels because as i say um the 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 regulatory requirements and what you have to do uh it it becomes a lot more uh, onerous and a lot more costly and so you you need to sort of pass those levels significantly to create the scale and and create those uh revenue benefits in order to uh in order to address the additional cost structure that you're going to have to put in place do you think that the tighter regulatory market that layers in costs and um and just time burden and pressure into managing a bank will create an organic advantage for some of the larger players or will um M&A and consolidation kind of be the driver of developing a more consolidated bank ecosystem? It's, it's a bit of both. I mean, I, I can talk about Flagstar. Uh, you, when I got into the COO role in, in 2013 and, and, and Sandro Donello, who was the CEO at the time and, and assumed the CEO role, um, Flagstar had a lot of regulatory issues to work through uh, and, and we did. And, and I can honestly say that Working with our regulators made us a much stronger organization. We are better for uh, the risk compliance infrastructure that we put in place, the processes that we put in place. And so, and, and to the point where with some of our businesses that, that where we're serving large customers and they're coming in to do due diligence, they really appreciate um, that tight infrastructure three lines of defense model, all the reporting that we have. And so there is undoubtedly an advantage for those larger organizations um, that have that very structured and comprehensive risk and compliance infrastructure. And then I think it's about the business model. So the interesting thing about banks is no one business is the same. Um, They all specialize in different areas. And so it, 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 it's going to be interesting to see what bank business models are deemed to be the successful ones. The street rewards the stock. They have more valuable currency. They're able to be the acquirers rather than being acquired um, because I think that's going to factor uh, into this. Uh, it's also going to reward those banks with the stronger deposit basis um, because that is perceived to be valuable, again, particularly uh, after this last bank crisis. And I think a diverse business model from a banking point of view is important. You need to generate strong earnings in any interest rate environment, whether rates are going up or, or whether rates are going down. Um, and, and so I think that's important. Do you have that diversified business model that can be successful in any interest rate environment? And, and I feel we, we have that at, at Flagstar. And that's going to be important as well in separating the, those that, that can be successful and be the, the acquirers from those that are going to be acquired. Earlier this summer, I believe you spoke with Flavia Ferland Nunez on our team at Housing Wire about some of the, the M&A activity. And, um, and I, your comment on working with working closely with your regulator kind of reminded me of a like part of that article um, and and the some of the dynamics that came together as the NYCB the New York Community Bank deal came together um, and then and then Signature Bank without I'm a, kind of operating under the assumption Lee that without working with your regulator 
the, the timelines for approval of a deal that, um, that you sourced, uh, in, in NYCB, like might have been prolonged and a deal working with the FDIC for signature bank may have never come to fruition without that regulatory relationship, correct? Absolutely. You have to work hand in hand with your uh, regulators uh, and have a strong relationship. And, uh, and and obviously, you have to have the right processes, uh, controls in place. You have to have a strong capital position, uh, strong liquidity position, and, uh, and show how um, the mergers or the acquisitions are going to create strong earnings going forward that are going to be additive to capital. So it, it, you can't do it without having a very, very strong partnership with your regulators. Yeah. So, Lee, I want to come back to talking about Flagstar post-acquisition integration, but let's, let's spend a little more time on on regulation and market dynamics. So the, the regulation that we've talked about is primarily impacting the larger depositories um, or proposed regulation. So give me a glimpse into how you're thinking about how regulation impacts today's mortgage business and kind of the you know the, the different regulatory uh, scheme between depositories and independent mortgage banks and kind of how you think regulation impacts um, how the market will evolve and where who will find success. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I think um, if you think about mortgage, uh, it, it, it has sort of many tentacles. It's not just about origination originations. Um, you know, we're a large mortgage servicer and subservicer. We're the second largest warehouse lender. Uh, we have a team that we acquired through the signature acquisition that focuses on deposit gathering um, from the, the, the mortgage ecosystem. Um, and so I think it, it starts with having, from a mortgage point of view, if you're within a bank, um, it's helpful to have that comprehensive and diverse mortgage vertical, as I call it, because within mortgage, there are, there are parts of the mortgage um, businesses that do better in an increasing rate environment versus a decreasing rate environment. So everybody thinks, oh, mortgage, you need to have a low rate environment because origination volume goes up and, and the warehouse lending business is doing better. That's true. But in a rising rate environment, your MSR asset is worth more. And being a bank and having a balance sheet and having capital, you're able to hold that MSR asset. Um, your subservicing business is more valuable because there are fewer payoffs. So your loan count is increasing. Um, and so, you know, that's obviously um, uh, an offset in, in a rising rate environment. And I think being part of a bank uh, and, and having that mortgage business, you're now part of a more diversified business model. So even in a rising rate environment, uh, your CNI, your CRE, other business lines are more successful um, and, and can offset some of the earnings loss from the origination business uh, and the warehouse lending business. Conversely, when rates are going down, uh, earnings that would be lost from those businesses are offset by your mortgage origination, your warehouse lending business. So, and, and, and the other advantage of being a bank is you're funded by deposits that are much cheaper than, say, a warehouse line, which non-banks are, use, are using to fund their businesses. Um, and and, and non-banks, you know, they're not lenders. Uh, they don't necessarily have the diversified business model, and they're not as diversified from a mortgage point of view. So, look, I'm, I'm a big believer that um, the mortgage business, it sits better within a bank 
because I just feel a bank has a lot more advantages in terms of you know funding costs, a more diversified business model, more capital, and so you're able to hold whether it's more MSRs or more mortgage loans and put them on on, on your balance sheet. Now I'm biased, uh, but but that's that's sort of my view. From a regulatory point of view, I think it, it, the regulatory environment, um, obviously, banks are, are, are heavily regulated. We, we've talked about that, and I think that's a good thing. But I think non-banks are as well. I mean, the CFPB, the state regulators. So I feel that you know, the, whether you're a non-bank or a bank, um, if you're doing consumer lending, uh, it's, it's just a highly regulated environment. There's no getting away from that. And again, I personally think that's a good thing. I think it's made us all better over the years. And I think it's led to a better experience and better product for the for the customers as well. Mm-hmm. So thinking about the current mortgage market, we've seen pretty massive home price appreciation over the last three years. And depending on where a lender concentrates their origination efforts, there's a pr- pretty high prob- probability if you're working in coastal markets Jumbo is an incredibly important part of the product mix. And I, and I think that leans a little even harder toward Jumbo inside of the depository institutions as many of them do kind of focus in on a, a, a depository clientele um, who fits into the Jumbo bucket pretty well. So how is regulation impacting the Jumbo product? I've, I've read a little bit in Bose George's research reports at KBW about how he sees regulation impacting Jumbo. Um, and I've historically have always looked at depositories of having a pretty significant advantage in the jumbo market because of the the balance sheet capabilities. But love to hear your thoughts on the jumbo market. Yeah, well, first of all, you're right. I think depositories have uh, a natural advantage uh, in the jumbo market because we have balance sheets. We're able to put those jumbos uh, on on balance sheet. But but also, uh, typically, um, you know, people who are uh, wanting a jumbo. Um, they are likely going to want other products and services that a full-scale bank is able to offer, whether it's wealth management or uh, whether there are other uh, products around uh, banking products or even uh, business products. So it's not just about the jumbo loan. There are other products and offerings that that, uh, a bank can give to those customers it's not just a transactional relationship. It's a much deeper relationship versus just doing a jumbo and having to sell it. Now, um, as part of these new proposed capital requirements, uh, the, there are, um, we don't know. We'll see what happens. But, you know, there are uh, rumors that the risk weightings on certain mortgages and, and, and jumbos would be um, one of those could be changed and, and it could be more punitive to hold those loans on the balance sheet from a risk weighting point of view. But until we sort of see the proposal, you know, we're just speculating uh, at the moment. My view is even if the risk weighting on a jumbo was to increase, given the other relationships and product offerings that you would be able to offer that particular borrower, uh, the returns for the bank overall, when you look at the overall relationship, would still um, warrant you'd been and wanting to do that jumbo loan. 
So the total relationship and kind of multi-product relationship with the customer is so important and for a depository. It, it's, it increases ROI on clients, increases the quality of relationship and the stickiness of relationships. In scenarios where banks aren't able to, um, or it's not desirable to keep a jumbo product on the balance sheet, and maybe that loan is sold, uh, securitized or sold as a whole loan, are you able to retain servicing so that for the customer that relationship doesn't change, or is that how, how does that play out? Yeah, well, so we are because we're the fifth largest uh, subservicer in in the country. So we have 1.6 million borrowers on our servicing platform, uh, but not everyone is able to do that. And uh, and again, that is that's part of the equation. So if you're having to sell. Um, the servicing away, it it makes that customer less sticky. And so now it's more of a transactional relationship. If you're able to retain the servicing, uh, it's a much stickier relationship. Uh, That customer is more familiar with the brand, the bank, and it's much easier to sell more products to an existing customer versus trying to bring a new customer in. So Lee, another kind of difference I've pick up on between the depository mortgage business and the the independent mortgage bank is kind of the where executive eyes kind of fall on the horizon, whether we're thinking about like a multi-quarter timeline or, or a multi-decade timeline. So, um, and finding that depositories kind of think, think pretty long-term about the business units that, that they operate. So we're in a cycle right now where origination volume has been, been cut pretty significantly for purchase, but especially for, for refi. So can you give us a glimpse into how you're thinking of how the industry has digested this change in origination volume and how, and how you think about maintaining the, the right, size of business that enables you to stay in a in this business unit for the long haul and and not cut too deep. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um there's obviously the interest rate environment um has tra- changed dramatically very quickly and it's put a lot of pressure on the mortgage industry. I mean, you go back to 2020 and 2021, you're talking about two years where the mortgage market was in excess of 4 trillion dollars. I think it was 2.2 trillion last year and it's forecast to be 1.7 trillion this year when you look at the latest forecasts from Fannie Freddie and the NBA and average them out. So that is a dramatic change. Um, and I think you have to be nimble enough to recognize that and adjust your um, infrastructure and your cost structure. Uh, and and I th- we've done that at Flagstar. I mean, we've been in the industry 35 years and so we're used to these cycles and we've moved quickly and decisively to right-size the cost structure for the size of the overall uh, market. I don't think everybody has necessarily done that yet, and there is still a little bit of excess capacity in the system. But I do think, given how tough 2023 has been and will continue to be, because uh, right now, you know, the Fed uh, is likely going to raise rates another two times before the end of the year. I think you'll find that that excess capacity will eventually um, right size itself. And by the time we get into 2024 and 2025, um, I think then you'll be back to a much more robust mortgage uh, uh, market where you're probably looking at around $2 trillion of, of origination volume, which if you average the mortgage uh, business out over a 10 or 20 year period, that's about 
where it should be. And those that are that are still there, I think will have um, good years. It's not going to be like 2020 and 2021, but they'll have good years. I think the, the thing that I would say is, and what we always focus on at Flagstar is profitability. We don't focus on market share because it's no good having market share if you're not making money uh, and your shareholders won't appreciate that. And so I think you've got to focus on profitability and you've got to look at the data um, and hope isn't a good strategy. You've got to react to, to what is actually happening. And we've done that at Flagstar. So what is the, what's the muscle that you flex to focus on profitability? So like how, like at so much of the conversation in mortgage is about market share right now. And I'll tell you as an executive, that's where my mind is right now on, uh, is on market share as we go through this, um, as we go through this cycle, what muscle do you focus on to ensure profitable operations as your kind of your, your North star? Yeah, I'm a numbers guy. And so first of all, you've got to have the data. So we can slice and dice uh, our mortgage business by every single channel, every single vertical, every single business line. So you've got to be, and and we know what the cost per loan is by channel, by business line. And and so it all starts with having the, the, the numbers and the data. And then if you've got that, it, 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 then it's putting the jigsaw puzzle together and saying, okay, you know, where does our cost structure need to be if the origination volume is is X in order for us to to be profitable and and, and viable? And then you've obviously uh, you can start saying we're able to hold this amount of MSR asset. What's the subservicing business generating? What's the warehouse lending business generating? What's the deposit gathering? team generating. And so you've got to be able to break it all down and deal with things on a factual basis. Don't try and do things by gut or or or, or don't just hope that things are going to change. Use the data and and um and, and react to the data using real facts and figures because if you don't do that, you you're not going to get it right. You're not going to get it right. How has the um, the integration of N- NYCB and Signature Bank um, kind of impacted your ability to have that level of granular data-driven management inside of the business unit. Has, has that been a cultural change or a technology change? Like, how, how has that integration and your the visibility that you manage by worked? Uh, it, it hasn't. It hasn't affected mortgage because um, obviously Flagstar, Legacy Flagstar, we we had a, a big mortgage business. Um, yeah. Whereas NYCB didn't have a mortgage business, neither did Signature. And so everything that we had in place has stayed in place. We haven't changed anything. So the tools that I, would just, I was just describing, you know, that's something that, that Sandro and I, you know, put in place over the years in our roles as CEO and COO. And so we haven't had to change anything in that regard. Oh, absolutely. It's it's it. We're not so rather than being part of a twenty six billion dollar balance sheet, we're now part of a hundred and twenty four billion dollar balance sheet. So we have a much bigger balance sheet. We have a much more uh, diversified business model. Uh, we're able to offer more products to our customers as a result. So it's a better customer experience. We have more capital. Um, and our liquidity makeup is a lot stronger. So 
it absolutely benefits the uh, the mortgage business um, significantly. Have you has like the the cross sell capability been built out yet, or is that still early in integration for for the mortgage business to start tapping into that depository base? Yeah, we we've just started on that. I think there's a lot more to come. So you know, leveraging the uh, NYCB banking customers, leveraging the signature um, high net worth wealth customers. And so we, we've just started on that journey, but I think there is a huge opportunity for mortgage in, in tapping into those uh, potential uh, lead and customer sources. And similarly, I think there's uh, opportunities that the mortgage vertical can provide to those high net worth and wealth businesses and, and the NYCB businesses as well. Yeah, is mortgage for a wealth business is mortgage ever the first product, or is that usually a a product that comes down the road once some invested investment assets have been gathered? It can be both. Uh, I mean, I think if you look at the First Republic model, mortgage was probably the lead product for bringing in wealth uh, clients and customers. And then I think in other instances, there is that wealth relationship that then facilitates. The mortgage, because there's obviously a lot of trust in the overall relationship, and uh, and when there's a lot of trust, uh, people want to do more business with 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 that brand that they trust. So I think it works both ways. Interesting. So Lee, as we talk about the the new flag star, this 124 billion dollar asset institution that's come together over the the last several years. We focus the conversation pretty retail heavy, kind of on the the retail side of the origination business. Can you give us a glimpse into the the other mortgage business line? So cor- correspondent. Oh yeah. Um, like yeah. Where, where else are you focused? Yeah. Well, so we we're more heavily focused in TPO. If you look at our uh, if you look at the breakdown of our origination business today, we're probably ninety percent TPO, ten percent retail. Um, but we originate in all six channels. This is another part of our uh, mortgage diversification strategy. So most mortgage companies will, will focus on one or two channels. We're in all six. So bulk, delegated correspondent, non-DEL correspondent, broker, and then distributed retail and, and direct-to-consumer. Um, yeah. And so um, we feel that that is an advantage because if there are more competitive pressures in one channel, we can focus our attentions to, to those channels where we're not necessarily seeing those competitive pressures. And we have seen that over the last couple of years, and we've been able to take advantage of, of um, diverting more energy and resources to those channels that maybe aren't seeing those competitive pressures. Right now, from a TPO point of view, we've seen... Um, We've seen a lot of dislocation recently. One of the major players, a major bank, um, has exited the space. And then we've seen other uh, originators exit certain uh, TPO channels. And and we benefited from that. Um, If you look at our Q2 versus Q1 originations, our fallout adjusted lot volume is up 70% quarter over quarter. And most of that increase was felt in, in the correspondent channels. And it's also allowed us to recruit um, some highly talented people um, from those organizations that have exited the, uh, uh, the correspondent space. So um, that's how we're sort of set up and that's how we've sort of benefited from uh, some of the dislocation that we've seen over the last few months. Interesting. So with some players entering and exiting the market, one of the topics that's come up a, a lot um, for 
banking leaders is is liquidity. And in July, I hosted a, a secondary market masterclass, and there was an episode uh, that I hosted with uh, Greg Richardson, who's EVP of Capital Markets at Premise Bank, which is and he runs a a, a non bank IMB subsidiary of a depository. Um, and uh, and Caroline um, Payne, who's the head of capital markets at Movement Mortgage on the, the IMB side. So we're, we're having this conversation. The one thing they can like definitely agree on is liquidity changes and the importance of managing relationships with investors. Um, can you talk a little about how you think about liquidity and how it differs or, or is similar in a bank the size of Flagstar with the $124 billion balance sheet? Yeah, well, it, I mean, it's obviously different from a, a, a bank point of view because um, we're all about deposits. Uh, and so, you know, our focus is on not just on deposits, but the quality of those deposits and the cost of those deposits, because you can obviously bring in a lot of deposits, but you can pay a lot of money for them if they're broker deposits, for example. Um, and, 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 and so you've got to, when we look at our overall mix, and this is another advantage of the merger with NYCB and then the acquisition of Signature, the the quality of our deposit mix improved significantly. Um, and it also took our loan to deposit ratio down from over 100% to below 90. Um, and so your liquidity and deposit mix is probably the most important part of your balance sheet. And it's the thing that analysts are most most focused on when they're looking at all of the bank results that are coming out right now. They're looking at deposit betas. They're looking at what uh, the cost has been to keep those deposits and the impact it's had on NIM and therefore the profitability of the overall organization um, and, and what that's likely going to mean going forward. So liquidity is, is, is very important from a banking point of view, and we're focused on it from, from you know, the, the, the mix and makeup of our deposits. I think from a non-bank point of view, you're obviously funding the business with warehouse lines, but your cash on hand balance is important because number one, are you optimizing the interest that you're getting paid? Because that's all part of your earning stream. Um, and, and obviously, do you have the right amount of liquidity to operate the business? Because we know in mortgage, there's a lot of non-cash items and so you want to make sure that you're focused on the cash items and you're holding the right amount of cash in order to operate the business. Um, and wherever you've parked your cash, you want to make sure that you're getting the appropriate interest rate and, and, and earnings on that as well. Lee, I, I've absolutely loved this conversation. I got to, when we get off camera, I have to recruit you to join us at Housing Wire Annual this year. Uh, I think there's some topics we could all benefit from your knowledge on. Lee, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge today. Ladies and gentlemen, Lee Smith, Senior Executive Vice President and President of Mortgage at Flagstar. Lee, thank you. Clayton, thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please take a few seconds to rate Housing News on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot for the show, and we really do appreciate and listen to your feedback. Also, we're gearing up for Housing Wire Annual in October. Please visit housingwire.com forward slash events for full details about our big annual event in Austin, Texas. Texas.